Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Okay, um, so we'll we'll just uh, just talk on random things right now. As I said, we have that training intensive uh, coming up, and you know something you learn from uh, highly competitive sports is you almost can't ever go into a competition a hundred percent. You almost always go in there with some sort of injury. Um, it's like even in a professional fight, no fighters fighting at a hundred percent. They might even have a broken bone or something. Um, and we've been training a little intensively of late since there's really no beginners since we haven't really fully opened up and we've had some injuries so let's kind of just mellow out a little bit and talk on things um the first question that was asked was uh, a comment about you know how anagia might not blend with uke's prescribed energy in tai nohenko and I think the point, you know, if you're trying to pull out a point that helps the dojo as a community, I would follow this wisdom. And that is, it's not Uke's job to fix Nage, and it's not a Deshi's job to fix another Deshi. Um, a Deshi's technique its quality is that deshi's responsibility and the responsibility of the teacher as far as assisting the deshi with their own responsibility. But it's not another deshi's problem. And that's important. You know, what I always did as I was coming through is, man, you, you're not my problem. Um, it was Sensei's problem. I did I did my job as Uke, and I did my job as Nage, and that was the end of it. But overall, that really helps the dojo community. Like the health of the community is in that. Now, as a secular atheist modern western you got you got this crazy ass notion that um that the good the good dojo member is there to help people do you know what i mean but really it's just ego tripartite and will to power it's not that's not what's going on um which is made evident by the fact that you can't help that person. You, you can't. We just want the feeling of having helped. 
or the feeling of them owing us for having help. But you cannot help them. The sensei cannot help them in, in, in terms of the skill that we want to fix. That's not what the teacher does. The teacher helps them get out of their own way so that they have a chance of fixing the skill. In other words, it's a very indirect method of assistance, which is why in the end, most deshi don't even know that the solution com they've come up with in their own minds was actually given to them 10 years ago by the teacher. Interesting. Sometimes, maybe on the teacher's deathbed, the deshi will go, oh, man, did I owe this person a lot. But usually, they're, they're, they're preaching back to the teacher the words the teacher gave to them, or they're, they're claiming um, accomplishments that, that they feel were self-derived but would never have happened without the teacher. That, that's what actually happens because it's so subtle and so indirect a form of assistance. But that is a healthy, an actual healthy, by which I mean viable, dojo community. So, um, you know, okay, what do I do with the senpai kohai dynamic and um, the maxim that um, compassion downward, respect upwards? Well, compassion is different from assistance. Those are not the same thing at all. Um, in a way, when you let a nage suck, uh, but you keep training with them, that's compassion. And in that you accept them where they're at and you accept the process that they're working through. But when you're driven to fix them, that's a kind of rejection of where they're at, you know? Or, and sometimes if you pay attention, you might even avoid those uke or those nage, right? Man, I can't do my thing with them. Uh, instead of like, you do your job as nage. It's not about you with them, okay? Or you do your job as uke. It's not like, oh, they can't really do the technique on me. Who, who cares? That's not your concern. That's the teachers to a limited degree, and it's their concern, okay? Uh, not usually the common view, but um, that probably means it's right, okay? Someone had something else? Can you come over and? I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to get my definitions straight. So when you talk about, you use the word con concentric a lot, and I believe the other word is epistemy. So in my head, I'm just trying to make sure I got it right. Are you talking about the fact that everything we do should link? to everything else we do to some degree? What, what are you talking, are you trying to ask, uh, when we consider an epistemy of concentrism, um, does that mean that everything links to everything else? Uh, okay, is that what you're asking me? Well, I think actually I'm asking for a definition of the word epistemy itself. Okay, so epistemy comes from the word epistemology, and this is a the study of knowledge, okay? So the, the, the in just plain speak, 
is first start with the possibility that there are different ways of thinking about the world. There are different ways of thinking. Do you see that? And each of those ways are an epistemy. Okay? So we have a scientific epistemy, which we spoke about in the last podcast, and we have this concentric epistemy. Okay? Um, probably, for me, the pivotal work was in Michel, Michel Foucault's The Order of Things. Okay? So Michel Foucault considered himself an archaeologist of knowledge. Okay? And so he's working with the assumption that if you go back in time, people thought differently. Like, not they thought different things. They thought differently. Do you understand that? Okay? And really, you could get this if you read chapter one. It's really quite poetic. It's beautiful. Um, it's almost humorous in many ways. He, he, um, he's going to make a problem or problematize our own order of things. Do you see? If, if you come to the world, the world does not present itself in any kind of sense, sensible way. Okay? It's just random things. But culturally, historically, we come to think a certain way and the world now manifests that order. Okay? So uh, we have things like the way we divide species and phylo and all, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, we have ways that we divide the genders and continents and things like that. And so in this book, in this chapter one of The Order of Things, he comes across a different type of taxonomy, a different way that the world is being ordered, okay? What goes with what, do you see? So, for example, we have um, the classification canine, and we put in there pug, uh, you know, um, German Shepherd, Terrier, do you get it? And then we relate wolves and foxes to them, and we make all these rules about it. But, you know, if you go deep enough, it's like it starts to get really blurry eventually at some point, okay? Um, this is like things where you get like the platypus. Like, what the hell is that? And where does it fit? Do you get it? Uh, but it, it also happens uh, much sooner than you might think than these kind of animals that are not really in, in, in that, uh, you know, weird category. Um, so, um, he's reading this taxonomy, and it, it categorized things that today we would go, oh, those things are not in the same category. Okay, and I can't remember all of the taxonomy off the top of my head, but I do remember two categories from this taxonomy, from this old text that he's reading, okay? I can't remember the date, but it's definitely pre-modern, okay? Um, and one of them is, uh, this is the title of the taxonomy, <laughs> Things Drawn with a Fine Camel Hair Brush, <laughs> So every everyone in this culture knows that, that that has to be drawn with the fine camel hair brush. So it all gets 
organized in that group. And another one of these categories was things that from a far way off look like flies. <laughs> because not everything does look like a fly from a far way off, do you see? And his point is that this actually functioned. This function, people traded by it, people married by it, people rose to power by it. You see, it functioned. Um, and so he called this epistemy, he called this, uh, he called it resemblance. Do you see? Um, and I have rejected that word for what he is ultimately pointing to. I think it is better described as concentric. Okay? And the the reason why is his the notion of resemblance is still housed in the scientific epistemy because it is still based in a kind of linear expansion of time still in cause and effect and uh the possibility of metaphor or analogy uh, and uh, symbol. So this represents that, do you see? So this thing resembles that, also implies this thing is not that. It just resembles it, do you see? But in truth, especially in religious cultures, especially in mystical religious cultures, this thing is not symbolic of it. It does not resemble it. It is it, do you see? But it is not it. It accepts both things, okay? And we heard this reasoning in uh, of lately in Beginner's Mind by um, Suzuki Doshi on the one chapter where he's talking about uh, you're both one and you're not one. You know, you're 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 both a soul and you're not a soul. You're both dying and you're both living. Do you see? And this kind of reasoning goes all the way back in Buddhism to well, at least where you see it formulated or formalized is in Nagarjuna and the Madhyamaka school, and in his Tetralemma. So it's really an an overextension of logic, which is very important because us moderns consider it illogical, but it's that's not what's going on. It's just logic taking taken to its extreme, okay? Um, and such that something can be, if we represent the tetralemma um, algebraically, something is A, something you have, what is the nature of reality for this thing? It is A. Or we can say it is not A. Or in other words, it is B. Do you see? And then you can go, whoa, wait, it's both A and B? And oh, crap, it's neither A nor B. And all of these are true about something. So um, let's connect this to Jung, for example. And he has his anima and his animus. Uh, do you guys remember what this is? Okay, so... Inside the male is this female kind of archetype, and inside the female is this male archetype. Uh, and this is how the ancients kind of saw things, right? It, the idea that you're one thing purely, like, that's impossible. I've never even seen anything like that in nature, never, 
okay? And hence you get symbols like the yin and yang. So they could have easily drawn a solid black field in a solid white, but that does not exist in nature. It might exi exist abstractly in our, in our uh, intellect, but it does not exist in nature, okay? So there's always a little bit of the thing that it is not in the thing that it is, okay? Um, so hence, if you have a male, you always have this kind of feminine side, and if you have a female, you always have this kind of masculine side to you. Um, and so Jung's idea is uh, modern culture has kind of shoved this off to the side to the degree that it creates a kind of neurosis in us uh, and what we have to do, so to speak, and as popular psychology would say, you got to get in touch with your feminine side, dude, or, you know, that kind of thing. Or you got to get a spine woman, you know, this kind of stuff, it's, okay? Um, so there isn't really this possibility of resembling something because it is in the thing itself. Do you see, yang does not resemble yin. That's not why the dot is there. Do you get that? Doesn't make sense. Do you see? Um, so what are they while they are one thing but also two things? Well, that's where the word consent. They're concentric with each other. And again, the analogy that I give you or the metaphor is like Russian stacking dolls. It's the same doll, it's inside the other doll, do you see? So like concentric circles, they're all circles, do you get it? Uh, they're just inside the other one kind of thing, or somewhere off, but like the other one, okay? Um, it's the same thing with your Aikido. Structurally speaking, there isn't all these different techniques, but there are countless techniques. See, um, somebody who goes, no, actually, there's 43 techniques is just full of shit. Uh, <laughs> you know, so somebody who reduces the aikido to the to the aikikai um, kihon curriculum just has no idea uh, of the epistemy in which the art was actually generated, okay? So in a concentric epistemy, I don't need an infinite amount of techniques. With one technique, I have an infinite amount of techniques. It, the one technique has all techniques ever possible, okay? Uh, and likewise, vice versa, okay? Or you could say, for example, we have kind of structurally or for simplistic reasons said, hey, look, there are these four Kazushi patterns, right? There's a front inward to the eight angle, front inward to the four angle, right? you know, you're, you're basically you're taking the eights, the, the cardinal directions plus the four uh, diagonals. And then uh, and you go and then you realize oh wait the back outward is is uh, also the same thing, and then you just keep digging like Nagarjuna did. You go you know what uh, one is supine and one is prone, but in terms of the center, what is supine and prone? If the center like we often described, if the center is kind of like this ball bearing that is rotating, where is the top and the bottom of the, of the center such that I can talk about prone and supine? But it's both uh, prone and supine, and it is both center, do you see? So the person who, who, 
who knows, let's say, the, the front inward kazushi and the back outward kazushi is going to be more skillful than the person who doesn't know these kazushi patterns. They're just learning techniques, you see. They are bombarded by uh, whatever, the 43 kihon wazadis, whatever the number is. I don't know what the number is, okay. Uh, they, that's enough. They're like, I, it's too many. I, don't, I can't learn all these things, right? And the next test comes up, and you have to show these next ones. You know, you got to show all 11 of these. Oh, shit. Oh, then, oh, my next test is 15 of them, you know, and it guy keeps you. And they're all worried about it, you see. But then you get a little more advanced. You go, oh, look, dude, there's only two Kazushi patterns. There's the front inward and the back outward, okay? And now that person is going to be able to find more of the infinite than the person who's stuck with 43, you see. They're also going to do those 43 better, okay? But eventually, you're going to find somebody who's going to take that next step and go, you know what? There's no difference between the front inward and the back outward, and, and that person's going to have more of the infinite and have more insight into the 43. And then you get that next person who they can do both. There is 43. There is front inward, back outward, and there is center. And there also is not. And this person is now at the very, very core of that concentric circle, right, of all those concentric circles. They are one with the infinite. But to be one with the infinite is to be one with the manifestations of the infinite. And it's not a rejection of all of it, do you see? So they can do... Takamusu Aiki, but they can still kick ass at straight, straight blast, you know, train on the rails, Ikkyo. Do you see? That's how this concentric epistemy works. And I would only point out, and the reason I, I went this deep here to answer your question, is because there is a, a sense of oneness that is in use with our modern epistemy you see you hear oh man be one with it you know but usually it's a rejection of the many and in a concentric epistemy you, you there is no difference between the one nor the many do you see so um and let me see if it's making sense to me you know like uh You know, you have you'll, you'll have like people. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. We, you see, this is this is what I'm talking about. You see, they got a problem with the with this one that showed up. Oh, there's a one that's a religious. Do you see? Or they go like, Oh, I'm into Zen, but fuck Catholicism. Do you see? Do you get it? They can't they can't allow the divine to manifest in all its infinite ways. You see, and yet they will talk about a oneness. You see, so but this is this is not the pre-modern concentric oneness. This is this is just modern bullshit. Okay, does that answer it? Okay. Anything else? Can you come over, please? Since I have two questions, one about the Ukemi review video and one about Zazen. Okay, let's do Zazen. 
the first, uh, the question on Zazen is lately we've been doing Zazen and I've had this um, thing happen where near the end of it, I'll have a drastic temperature change fill come through my body and then Hot I'll break, break into a sweat. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you'd experienced that before and what's going on. Okay. Um, it's actually... It's actually a good technique to know uh, for a warrior. This capacity to generate heat through breathing. Okay, I have many a times been on a cold night, and that got me through that night. Okay, so don't don't undersell it. All right, but I'm not sure uh, that that is. Uh, what we're trying to do in Shinkan Taza, in the form of Zazen that we do, okay? Um, again, modern understandings like to see Zen as, you know, uh, a form of secular atheism. So it's all, it's all prioritizing the intellect, but it's not. It's not. Um, it's right in there with any other mystical tradition in the sense that the goal is to actually experience the reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy and to gain skill in generating that experience at will. Okay? That, at that point, I have defined every single mystical tradition. You, you, you wouldn't know Zen from Gnosticism at that point, okay? Um, what you're trying to do in Zazen is what you're trying to do in your Aikido classes, okay? You are trying to, uh, uh, let me just speak poetically here, you are trying to stumble upon that experience. That is what you're trying to do. Through, through through place, um, by, by generating a ritual space, which we have in the dojo. You see, a lot of people today um, don't really, doesn't really matter where they train. Some, some people even think it's silly, and I imagine some people even will start talking about cultural appropriation regarding the decor of a dojo. But rather what is going on is there's a ritualization of space itself for technological reasons that generate this experience that we're talking about. So, so today, for example, I posted a video of a chapel, do you see? And the chapel is of such a nature, by design, derived from uh, generation after generation generation of insight into how this space, this lighting, the way sound works here actually impacts our body-mind. Do you see? And so you see that chapel there. And you know what it does? The last thing you're going to do in that chapel, just to show you that you're being manipulated, do you see, by the space itself. Uh, you don't want to talk loud. You, you're going to shut up and whisper. Um, it's the same way that you see an amazing view 
out in nature. Uh, you know, I've gone hiking with you guys. You guys talk so much in the fucking woods. It drives me crazy, okay? But at a certain point, we hit some view, some vista, and you guys finally shut up for a little bit. Do you see? The view took over. Do you see? Do you get it? Well, there's chapels like that and cathedrals like that and temples like that. And there's dojo like that. The dojo are ritualized space meant to manipulate you to, in other words, to prime you for a particular experience. What experience? The reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy. Okay. And in the way that space is ritualized, sound is ritualized, time is ritualized, and so too um, the movement of the body, what you are thinking, all these things are designed with a particular aim. When someone starts talking about cultural appropriation or just, you know, cute little decor, they don't understand that they're telling you, I don't understand these pre-modern technologies anymore. Okay? And so you can turn this into a, 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 a CrossFit box or all we need is a mat. You know what I mean? Um, they don't have, if, if you use pre-modern terms, there's no sacrality to the space. But I'm telling you, what that means is the space is now impotent to generate or to prime you towards this experience. Okay. Well, Zazen is a continuation of that. Okay. Um, the emphasis on stillness and the emphasis on silence is very much related to the reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy, which is why across mystical traditions you're going to see these two practices either conjoined or emphasized one at a time. Okay. And that's what you're trying to do in Zazen. Okay? But if you take, for example, a Zen temple, and in Zen it's very much said the zazen is the heart of the practice. The cushion is the heart of the temple, etc. But if you if you were to go in there as an anthropologist, and you would go, you know what? I'm going to break down the time of the monk's day and categorize what's what. Zazen is not the most time spent. Working is the most time spent. Working. If you if you look at it this way, you go, what is Zen? Oh, it's a labor. It's a labor religion. <laughs> or even more, you could go, it's a cleaning religion. Okay? It's a cleaning and cooking religion. Okay? Um, and what I mean to say by this is that even if you have a center practice, it is being supported by other practices that give it its context, or by which I mean its potency, to prime you for this experience. Okay? The experience is not guaranteed. The priming is just a matter of generating both possibility and depending on the deshi, probability. Okay? So, you know, you probably want to go, well, if I, okay, I, I get some, uh, if I ever find myself on a battlefield freezing in the middle of the night, I, I guess I'll heat myself up thanks to sensei. 
okay? <laughs> That's probably not where you're going to go. You probably want to go and say, well, um, what am I, what does it feel like once I get this? Or, you know, how do I achieve or how do I manifest this possibility of being primed accordingly? That's, that's where the next question comes, right? And really, hey, I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't know when and I don't know if, okay? Um, I will say this, though. It, it is very much a feeling, okay? Uh, meaning it, it feels a certain way. The, the mystical experience is a feeling. And uh, once you have the feeling and you become very familiar with the feeling, you can manifest it over and over. You can feel for it and therefore feel it. And so when you, for example, if we come off the cushion and we come into the center of our practice, which would be, let's say, um, taijutsu, our body art, you are trying to do every technique with that feeling. I'm not trying to do ikkyo. I'm not trying to do armbar. I'm not trying to throw my uke. I'm just doing this feeling. Okay. And the feeling just guides the technique. This is what we're trying to do. So when I sit on the cushion, I'm not trying to relax. I am not trying to not go to sleep. I'm not trying to heat my body. I'm not trying to count my breaths. I'm not trying to do I'm just feeling that feeling again. Okay? That's all I'm doing over and over. Again, you go, well, when do I feel that feeling? Well, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know if you will either. Okay, But... Uh, this idea is uh, quite different from when do I get this realization, which is how modern Zen people talk. When do I realize this? Like, no, that is not it. There's nothing to realize. Okay, there's nothing to realize. Um, that is a pointing in the wrong direction. Okay. You don't see that talk until the 20th century. Okay. We, we, we shared that video, um, Bodhidharma's talk on, um, what was it, Sermon on Awakening? Yeah, you, there, you, can't even, you can't realize that even if you tried. You know, that stuff is just insane. Um, imagine you're sitting at that guy's feet. And he's talking like that, and you're like, and it, you're just like, can I just get back on the cushion? Because you are not saying anything I can even grasp, right? But if you have the feeling, what he's saying is perfect, makes perfect sense. Just like on the other question, you can be in the Catholic Church, and you can be in the Zen temple, and they are the same places, you see? And your second question on Ukemi? Thank you, Sensei. Um, in the review video you recently posted again, there's a part where you have, you're talking about the arm bar and you're talking about going under it. And I'm not understanding that. I wonder if you could explain it a little bit more. I'm not sure I went under it. Well, you ask this kind of question a lot. 
you keep asking, how do I stop being, how does Ukemi stop scaring me? <laughs> you keep looking for the answer for that. And I don't think there's an answer for that. I think Ukemi is supposed to be scary. Right? You're, you're not try, you're, in other words, you're not trying to go, Sensei, how do I take Ukemi for Juji Nugget? That's not what you're asking me. Do you know what I mean? You're like, when I took that throw, that scared the F out of me. I don't like it. Clearly, I must be doing something wrong. Do you see? But the question is motivated by, I don't like this. Okay? And I'm not sure that you're going to get what you want out of Ukemi when you like it. I think that's the opposite of what Ukemi is. Okay? And uh, I think we have some Ukes here. They sure like Ukemi. They sure want to like it more. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? It's like, mm. but you could, you, if you go, what is ukemi? And you go, ukemi is, <clears throat> is the giving of yourself. Do you see? And this is a body mind practice. So guess what? It's all of yourself. Do you see? And that means it's a releasing of all of yourself. Do you get it? And if you go, what if if, if, if you say, how do I release all of myself? Then you're going to talk about more than just receiving damn juji nage. And we're going to see that we have problems all the time releasing all of ourselves. Do you see? So you got, we have some major ones here. Some of you have some very hard time uh, relating to the sensei because you can't release all of yourself. It's like you want to be the deshi, but you won't be. Do you see? Because you won't let go of a whole lot of yourself. That's the same problem. And you look at why you won't, you're going to find the same culprit. I'm afraid. I'm afraid to. Right? Or you might find pride, right? I'm too important to let go of all myself. Again, it's kind of weird. Right? It is kind of weird when you think about it. I always have, it always makes me laugh because it's all like, you know, why are you such a big prize that the teacher has to get you? Do you know, like, what are you giving the teacher? You're so huge. The teacher's going to go, I got this person. They're, they're so huge, and they're mine. You're like, oh, my God. It's kind of crazy talk, do you see? And in an art where we're trying to experience the reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy, we're talking about a reconciliation of ego. Do you see that? And the relationship between fear, pride, and ego. And here you are in the Sensei Deshi relationship, and you are just the biggest catch in the world that you got to protect yourself from being caught from the teacher to justify why you can't give all of yourself. It's just like, oh, man, why are you here? You go, did the teacher come? Did the teacher, like, you know, like an Australian shepherd, herd you in here against your will? You know, no, that didn't happen. Did the teacher show up at your house? No, that didn't happen either. Were you drafted or recruited? No. Do they have your bank? No, none of that. It's like you are not the big fish you think you are. But you feel like it. You see? And the thing with big fish is they're scared. They're scared of being caught. So you're okay. You're really, if you look at it, I'm afraid of being thrown. I'm afraid of being thrown. Admit it. It's the same thing why you have the choreographed uke. 
the choreographed yuke is afraid of being thrown. That's why they're like, I'll throw myself, thank you. But it's still fear, and so it's still ego, and so it's still not budo. At a spiritual level, not just at a martial level, at a spiritual level, at its core, it is not budo. It is just egocentrism. So if, if, the, if, you, if you go, okay, I had this negative feeling on receiving Jujinage, your question is, how do I not have this negative feeling? That's the real question. The false question comes from the ego and comes from fear, and it's all like, how do I take Ukemi? Do you see? It's like there's some way that it won't hurt anymore. What, what Ukemi is, you're now not hurtable. That's the difference. The being that can give all of himself cannot have anything taken from them. Do you see? That's what Budo does. It's not, well, you know, when we talk about Aikido as a kind of self-defense, let's say, let's just use modern terms. It's not that you kick ass and you can't be defeated. It's that you have no space for the attack to manifest itself. You have no part of you that can be attacked, that can feel attacked, that is vulnerable to the attack. That's an entirely different thing. Might you get killed? Yes. That's an entirely different question. Like, did your pulse stop and they're dead? And yeah, do you remember her? I do remember her. She was kind of nice. That's a different question. We're talking about ego reconciliation. And that is what uke is and ukemi is, okay? And that's how you take ukemi. To look for it to be pleasurable and comfortable and not scary. There's just more ego attachment, okay? Anything else? This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sentient Center and on our YouTube channel at Sentient One. Thank you for listening.